everybody. Uh, welcome to the Happy Dog. My name is Sean. I'm one of the co-owners here. Thank you for coming out to uh, thank you for coming out to bars and to music venues for, for starters. Before before I kick off, one of the reasons we're able to be here is because both of our senators in Ohio co-sponsored the Save Our Stages legislation. And we have two representatives from Rob Portman's office who were instrumental in getting the senator's support for that bill here. So I just want to acknowledge the work that Senator Portman did stepping up and supporting all of the venues and museums. We are very fortunate to be back here and to be in partnership with the City Club. Um, we're also happy to be full. Uh, <laughs> since we've been gone, I've also taken on, on a new role uh, with the Hospitality Sector Recovery Initiative. And in the interest of that recovery, tonight we've got a show booked here right after this. So I just wanted to give folks a heads up. We've already worked out with the with a wonderful wine bar across the street. If folks want to keep talking and the band's too loud, uh, they're all set up for us to carry the conversation wow. across the street. <laughs> Lindsay runs a great place across the way there. So with all that out of the way, we are very lucky that we get to partner with the city club um, and with WCPN on this series. We've been doing it. Dale and I were trying to figure out eight, nine years. Uh, we did cover uh, Russia and Ukraine back in 2014. Crimea uh, was, uh, was occupied, and unfortunately, uh, we're talking about it again in this context. So, um, but with that, I want to turn it over to Dan and welcome our friends at the City Club. Thank you so much, Sean, and uh, thanks again to Senator Portman's staff, who's here. We love working with you as well. Uh, thanks. Uh, also, just a shout out to the mothers uh, who are in the audience, because my mom's here and Sean's mom is here too. So if you have a mom and you love her, give her a round of applause. So uh, I, I don't know how many of you come to happy come to City Club events at the City Club. We're thrilled to have you here at a City Club event at the Happy Dog. Thanks so much for being a part of this tonight. Um, we're gonna the way this is gonna work. We're gonna have a conversation. Melana Stereo of uh, of Cleveland State University School of Law is going to be our moderator, and she'll introduce our panelists. They're going to talk up here for about a half hour, maybe a little longer, and then we'll transition to questions from all of you. If you have questions, you can come and, and um, up to this microphone. We'll have a little line going. If you don't want to um, stand up and ask your question, if you're on Twitter, you can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll try to work it in. And there's also a, a number that you can text your question to if you're not on Twitter. And I'll tell you that number now. We'll tell it to you again later, but it's 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794. If, like if you'd like to text in a question, we'll work it in. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming out, though. Um, this is one of the things that, uh, one of the kinds of programs that we love to do at the City Club, to just bring conversation out from uh, the four walls of, of our organization, of our facility, into the, um, into the neighborhood, into a place like this. Sean has always been such a great partner. And this also, this, this thing that we're doing tonight, I mean, we had a different program planned a week ago and then everything shifted and we just pivoted really quickly. Really grateful to our panelists today, to, to George and to Ross and Peter for, um, for joining us on such short notice. Um, this is really important stuff and this gets to the, we do everything that we do 
at the City Club uh, for the sake of democracy and for the sake of a stronger community. And that's what's, hap what's happening right now is about a threat to democracy, and that's why this is just all so important. So all of that being said, again, welcome to all of you. Welcome to the City Club. And I want to turn it over to Melanie Stereo for our introduction. Thank you so much. My favorite part is ringing the bell. <laughs> um, hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Milena Serio, the Charles R. Emmerich Jr. Calfee Halter and Griswold Professor of Law at Cleveland State University. And today we're at the Happy Dog in Cleveland's Gordon Square District talking about the Ukraine crisis. The news from Ukraine is changing by the hour, but some parts of the story are not changing. A fledgling European democracy is finding its sovereignty threatened by a hostile neighbor led by an autocrat. And just last night, President Joe Biden dedicated significant time during his State of the Union speech to offer words of support for Ukraine and its people. So what is actually happening in Ukraine and what has led to this moment? And what are the stakes for the global economy? We're joined today by three Ukrainian Americans with deep ties to Ukraine and its capital, Kyiv. Dr. George Askew, Vice President of the United Ukrainian Organization of Ohio, a group that helps coordinate the activities of all Ukrainian societies in greater Cleveland. Dr. Jasku is also a professor of psychiatry. Taras Magala is the chairman and president of the Ukrainian Catholic Education Foundation, which supports the operations of the Ukrainian Catholic University located in Western Ukraine. And Peter Taluk with Squire Patton Boggs' Kiev office. Peter lived in Ukraine for over 20 years and recently served as the senior advisor to Ukrainian Minister of Economy. If you have a question for our panelists, you can do so in the second half of the program. You can also text your questions to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your questions at, at the City Club. We'll try to work them in. George, Taras, and Peter, welcome to the Happy Dog. Thank you. Thank you. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about how we got here? How did this happen? How did Russian President Putin decide to invade Ukraine? Um, George, would you like to get us started? Sure. Um, I think this has been a long time in the making. If we look back at Putin's rants starting from the mid-2000s, it's been clear to him that he had a number of grievances and grievance driven essentially against the West and Ukraine in particular. And I don't think any of us appreciated how deep those were. And I think to jump forward, the current invasion really has been the culmination of a long process. And my stance is the rant against NATO, the rant against Western Europe is only part of his uh, animus. I think the main force driving him is the visceral desire to reclaim Ukraine as an integral part of Russia. He has a sort of mystical notion that it's like the Trinity. There's two peoples, but they're really one. They can't be separate. If they separate, they're going to die. So whatever happens, we've got to reunite them in sort of religious fashion for the body to survive. I'm going to end there. Yeah, I, I completely agree, uh, George. I, I think personally, the question that follows on to the, to the question you asked is why now? You know, why is the invasion happening now? And I, I think, quite frankly, it's because Ukraine is succeeding. 
you know, Ukraine is making concrete strides to become you know, a civil democracy that's functioning. If you think about it, Ukraine has elected six presidents when Russia has had one. And unlike Russian presidential elections, the Ukrainian presidential election result is not known prior, prior to the election <laughs> being held. That, that, that's a threat to, 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 to the Russian empire. And I think it's, it's actually a testament to Ukraine's success that, uh, that you see uh, Putin doing what he's doing now. Yeah, and, and just to go on with that, I, I, I think Putin has kind of started, he started testing the waters in, in, 20, in 2014. Um, at, at that time, Ukraine was moving and there was talk about uh, moving in, in, into a European uh, association agreement and Ukraine was very close to, to doing that. Um, when the Ukrainian president at that time, who was democratically elected, but um, in reality was kind of leaning towards Russia, decided at the last minute to bail and not sign an EU um, association agreement and rather take what at the time was termed by Putin as aid of $3 billion, but that was basically a bribe, bribe by Putin um, to, to, to Ukraine. Um, that basically triggered um, some protests on, on the Ukrainian streets, which uh, I was um, literally there. Um, our offices were literally right across the street. I saw it from my balcony every day on, on what was going on. And what it started basically with some small student protests you know, coming out and saying, oh, you know, we're, 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 we're against this. Um, in, in reality, they probably would have fizzled out on, on, on their own, um, except for on one, I believe it was a Thursday night at three or four o'clock in the morning, um, the Ukrainian president at that time decided to send send in military forces in order to try to clear out these peaceful student um, protesters and decided to beat them at three or four o'clock in the morning, which then drove Ukrainians the, during the weekend to come out in you know droves of literally a couple hundred thousand people to start protesting um, uh, the, to start protesting the government actions against these students. Um, and you know, we we were discussing this in, in the car ride coming here on, on, on some of the issues um, that, that that might be raised. One of the things that, that we've seen um, from from the Ukrainian community is, is is Russia trying to paint this a picture of you know, oh, there was a coup before against the former president. There was no coup before the former president. There were peaceful demonstrations in the streets. There were hundreds of thousands of people that come out to protest against uh, against his policy. The president at that time, President Yanukovych, turned guns, um, whether they were Russian spies, whether they were whether they were Ukrainians. But there was a hundred thousand. There was a hundred over a hundred people shot on the streets for protesting. There there was no coup. And then more and more people started coming out. The Ukrainian president panicked and actually left the country. So that's what the Russians are now trying to term that this is a coup that happened to Ukraine. Now, you're kind of leading me to my next question, which is to talk a little bit about Putin's own words and, and justifications in his opinion for the invasion of Ukraine. So for example, Putin has been trying to build this narrative of Ukraine as a part of Russia, that basically this is legitimately part of Russia and historically perhaps part of Russia. And then he has also talked about denazifying Ukraine. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and you know, what do you think Putin is really talking about and can you sort of de debunk that? 
Yeah, I'll comment on that screed that he published in the summertime, which we should have read more carefully because I think it outlines his thoughts. It's basically this long screed of the kind of philosophy you see in Marxism, a lot of words jumbled together, composed of either of falsehoods, um, distortions, and decontextualized facts. And he tries to link them together. He goes between the 10th century cave in Rus, he goes to the 16th century Kozak uh, state, he goes to the 18th century. And there's a saying in neuroscience that you can't make up for the lack of good data by giving bad data. So he's got a lot of bad data linking together with these tortuous logical connections which break. They creak and they break into the strain. They just don't fit together. Um, but he tries his best, and he's got this problem logically. You can't prove a negative. You can prove a problem, you can't prove a negative. So he has to prove that this country, which has been on the ground for at least 30 years by modern standards, doesn't exist. So he's tortured in that. But it's sort of a, an attempt almost to appeal to a mythology, drawing together non-legal, non-interrupted accepted set of ideas that go harken back to a kind of mystical, never-was-Russian world. I mean, it just never existed in that fashion. So he clearly has a distorted element of history, which essentially transcends even what 19th century Russia was, linking the medieval ages, the Kozak state, the Russian empire, and beyond. So it's a very bizarre tortured history, but it clearly is important to him. Yeah, I'd like to address the, the denazification point. I think the denazification point, I think, is the one that uh, find, I, I just find that to be unbelievable to me. You know, there's no question, right, that Ukraine and Russia have a history of anti-Semitism that's unfortunate, and, and that's not something that, that anyone's going to deny. Having said that, Ukraine is only the, the only other country other than Israel to have a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister at the same time. Uh, and, and a Jewish defense minister now. Right. Ukraine has, Ukraine has really developed from being a society dominated by an ethnicity, but, but one that's actually dominated, that, 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 is, that, that organizes around a civil society. It's multicultural, it's, it's uh, multi-confessional. During the, the um, Revolution of Dignity and also in the Orange Revolution, you saw rabbis, Orthodox priests, Catholic priests, imams standing on the stage together. So th this concept that, that somehow Ukraine is this far-right Nazi state it is again something that that uh, is eaten up by certain portions, I think, of the Western media, but just has no basis. Yeah, and and to kind of continue along that, that string of thought, it's it's basically the Putin playbook, um, and he plays it whether it's in the United States. Um, you know, we can go back to the elections of, of 2016, and he was basically playing both sides of uh, off of, off of each other. Honestly, Putin didn't really care who wins; he just wanted the U.S. to. To, to, to create discord and say we don't support whoever whoever gets elected president. Um, we've seen it in other countries. You know, it's been it's come out that uh, Russia was a lot behind the Brexit with 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 England leaving the UK. So his playbook is basically to create misinformation. Keep talking about lies, and if if he talks about them long enough, somebody on somebody with, with you know that is against them will will pick up on that and start splitting against the people that should be united against them. Big kudos right now to the United States and, and, and the current administration and what they've been doing with what's been happening over the past months. Um, you know, we can discuss politically, which I, I've been an advocate of with, with all of my friends 
um, look, you know, we are where we are today, and we got to play the cards that we ha that that we have. And people in Ukraine are dying, so let's put our political differences aside right now and not start blaming policy. Because I, I can go back all the way to FDR and after World War II and find every single presidential administration that has failed Ukraine with respect to their policies. But the good thing that the administration here has currently done is they've gotten ahead of the game, and this started, you know, I think a, a couple of months ago, where they started talking about what the playbook is going to be from Russia, that they're going to come out and say this. They're going to say that Ukraine is, uh, is, has chemical weapons that they're going to use uh, against Ukrainians. They're going to start playing the genocide story. Um, I think Putin has realized with, 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 with respect to Ukrainians and Nazis um, and you know, the, the, the Ukrainian take Jews line, it, he's losing on that. And, he, and so he's kind of moved away from that, but he's throwing everything out. So... You know, um, when there's when when there's divisions, you know, what we ask um, those who support Ukraine is for everybody to kind of step back and look at the issue of you know what is Ukraine doing about this, not what our favorite politician here in in the U.S. is saying about it. You know, one point, uh, by the way, on the, on the on the Putin playbook that I think is really important. His goal is not to make people believe that Ukrainians hate Jews or that it's full of Nazis. It's to create doubt. It's to create this, gee, I don't know. We, you know, there are two sides to this, right? So he's trying to create this two sides discussion. And that, quite frankly, is toxic because if you are conflicted, if you don't know which side to believe, then you don't take action. And I think that's that's really what we're fighting against. Yeah. And, 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 even, and even if I could just add, you know, you, you hear, you know, Ukrainian speakers hate Russian speakers. And he said, that's, I'm sorry, that's completely wrong. Um, I lived in Ukraine. My wife is Ukrainian. Uh, we speak Russian in the house. Uh, we speak Ukrainian in the house. We speak English. And we, we, we speak English in the house. When we're talking with people, we're talking with people and, you know, in, in a manner that we can communicate with them. If they speak Russian, that's great. I worked for a multinational in, in Ukraine at one point in my career and traveled all over Ukraine. I was in Donetsk giving you presentations in Ukrainian and saying, you know, I'm sorry if you want to ask me in Russian, I'm happy to you know, answer or have it translated. And the response that I would you know, overwhelmingly get is like, we're happy to hear Ukrainian. If you can communicate to us that way effectively, you know, we're, we're happy to hear it. So that is also kind of, you know, one of the things that Putin tries to play up is just a false narrative. I'll agree with that with one exception. That is, Mr. Putin has two audiences. One's abroad, and that's the disinformation you refer to, and there's an internal one. And for 20 years, I've been feeding them his own story. And unfortunately, for many Russians who don't look at the internet or read international journals, the narrative is accepted. So if you do polling in Russia, a large fraction do think that Ukrainians suppress the Russian language. They attack Russians if they come to visit or speak Russian streets, which is absurd. The dominant language in Kiev is still Russian history. Kharkiv is a Russian-speaking city, which is being polarized as we, as we sit here. So it's, um, but he's been able to convince the populace. And we shouldn't be surprised. 70% of a certain party in this country believe the last election was stolen, and the current president is illegitimate. So we shouldn't be perplexed at what goes on in Russia in this regard. Now, I'm a professor of international law. Under international law, it is crystal clear that the Russian use of force against Ukraine is illegal under the United Nations Charter, under customary law, under general principles of law. But I have to ask the difficult question, 
Um, how is this any different than, for example, when the United States used force in Iraq in 2003, invaded Iraq, toppled the regime without the approval of the United Nations? So how is this different? Crack at that. You know, I think that that question uh, is the wrong question to ask, and this is the reason. It's, it, it, to ask a question like that actually puts this discussion in terms of Ukraine being um, somehow the object of a dispute between the United States and Russia. Right. So here's Ukraine. The United States is coming in trying to take Ukraine. Russia's trying to take Ukraine. And so, you know, who's more justified in taking Ukraine into its sphere of influence? But and this is the point. The point is, what do the Ukrainians want? What do the Ukrainians want? And it's frankly, we've got a country of 42 million people the size of Texas that's making an independent decision that's not ideological. They're not making this decision that I want to be like the United States. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is we want to be normal. We want to be European. We want to have a rule of law. We want to have a civil society. We want to have judges that are, that are going to decide cases on their merits and not be bribed. And the United States is coming to the aid of that country. Right? So quite frankly, I think there's a world of difference between what the United States is doing in supporting the, 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 you know, the, the aspirations of the Ukrainian people you know, and, and uh, you know, the, the uh, scenario that you suggest. Yeah, and in addition, when you're looking at a particular court case, if you have a case, you're looking at the facts of that case and the actors in, in, in that case. In this case, we have a Russia that is an aggressor against a peaceful, uh, a peaceful country. So you know, if we're looking at it from a purely legal matter, you know, that's what we should be looking at, not the whole policy of the United States um, you know, around the rest of the world. And that's what we're asking people to do. You know, whatever the policies have been, whatever, you know, it is what it is. Great. Now, the, a, I have a couple of other questions, and then we'll turn to um, audience audience questions. Um, I think it's also important to explain a little bit the role of NATO. You know, there's been a lot of talk about NATO and was Ukraine going to join? Is that one of the reasons that Putin decided to um, act against Ukraine now? So can one of you talk a little bit about NATO and, and what do you think? Um, you know, do you think NATO is important in this in this conflict? And, and how do you see the role of NATO in the future, perhaps? Um, again, I think that Putin terribly dislikes NATO. It's a grievance from the fall of the Berlin Wall when he claimed that he was trying to reach Moscow on instructions and nobody was answering. I think that hole was never filled in his heart. Um, there's a reason why most of the countries in Eastern Europe after 91 joined NATO. They were afraid. They were afraid of the larger neighbor, what was going to happen. Nobody coerced them. They were glad to skirt into the apron of NATO. And to go back to the polling, one of the things that's been shifting the last decade is the thoughts of Ukrainians about NATO. Until 2014, I think the polling was around 20-30%. After the seizure of Crimea and of Donbass, that began to rise rapidly with every coming year. And so I think for Putin, the issue was a combination, not just of NATO moving closer, but of realizing that if Ukraine joined NATO, his dreams of reconstituting a true Russia with this mystical dual soul was done. So he had an element. Demographics were changing, time was changing. It was either now or never to go back to what Tarot said before. You know, I, I actually believe that the NATO issue is completely pretextual. I don't really think that NATO factors into Putin's thinking very much, very much at all. 
uh, frankly, Putin is much more afraid of Ukraine joining the EU. Because if, if, if Ukraine joins the EU and they've got a prosperous democracy on their border, then his oligarchic business model fails. And that's much more threatening to him than, than NATO. I'm not saying that NATO is not a factor. I just don't think it's a driving factor. And, and by the way, people know that Ukraine is a number of years away from joining NATO, right? You also have the Baltic states that are already members of NATO right on the Russian border. And he didn't really seem to, to overreact to that as well. And you don't have missiles coming into the Baltic states threatening Moscow. So. You know, for me, it's hard to really know for sure, but I really think that the NATO issue is not the primary driver. Uh, I think it's a primary reason that, that, that Putin is, is using right now um, in order to defend his power with, with his people. Um, and, you know, it's easy, to, it's easy to rally your troops and get them to ignore what's difficult in their day-to-day -day lives when you say there's an existential power kind of coming in and, and threatening us. So I think Putin is using that very, very effectively. Does he, deep down inside, think NATO is actually going to attack him? No. The U.S. and, and NATO have never attacked another country or taken territory from, 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 from another country. But is it a useful tool for him? Yes, absolutely it is. If, if I can just make one comment, I'm sorry if I'm looking at my phone. Um, I actually, my, my wife is actually in Ukraine right now. Um, she's been kind of making a run from Kiev where she was a couple of days ago, and and in the view, she's in the view um, right now safely. But if, if I'm looking at my phone, apologies, uh, you know, apologies. But I get some messages. The last message, funny enough, is is my son who was asking me how long does he have to cook broccoli. You know, so. I was, I, 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 I was proud of the fact he's eating broccoli and, and, and relieved that it wasn't my wife calling me, telling me she's a terrible being. Yeah. Uh, on, the, on, on that question of NATO, I have uh, a follow-up hypothetical. You have a law professor. We love to throw hypotheticals at, at, at people and ask them to, to resolve them. But, you know, let's say that Mexico joined a, a, a military alliance with Russia or whatever, you know, North Korea, some state that's sort of the arch enemy of the United States. Wouldn't the United States react militarily against Mexico? What do you, what do you, what, you know, what would your take on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess you look at Cuba, right? And Cuba's political orientation was not the result of the crisis that, you know, it was the Cuban missile crisis. It was putting missiles into Cuba that was the issue, right? I, I think that, that, you know, no one's talking about putting nuclear missiles into Ukraine threatening Moscow at this point. Uh, as a matter of fact, Ukraine is the only country in the history of the world that voluntarily gave up their yep. nuclear weapons in 1994 for the in exchange for the assurance by the UK, the United States, and Russia of its territorial integrity. One wonders now whether or not any country in history will ever do that again, right, uh, given the fact that that uh, treaty doesn't seem to be worth the paper it's printed on. So I understand the question, but I think the facts are very, very different. You're talking about the 1994 Budapest, the Budapest, Budapest right? Memorandum. That's yes. correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where Ukraine gave up the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Yeah. On, on, on the assurances of, of, of other countries. Okay. Now, in and, 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 and also, again, I, I think we have to understand, you know, Russia has a, Russia and their mentality is different. You know, would the U.S. get upset if, if, if Russia suddenly had Mexico as their closest ally? Yes. But why? Because Russia is an aggressor state, the U.S. is not an aggressor state. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, we have many faults, 
know, I'm, I'm sure in, in, in the 70s and 80s, we played in countries and, you know, during the Cold War um, in, in, in ways that, that were aggressive in, in playing against communism. And, you know, it has, you know, there's a lot of you know, problems domestically, you know, in the United States that we have to, you know, cover. But, you know, in the end, people here are good and people believe in freedom. And they, they believe in promoting, you know, independence and they work and they believe in being better, you know, and helping out others. You know, Russia just and, and their leadership does not have that mentality. Thank you. Now, in a few minutes, we'll turn to your questions. This is my last question to the panelists. If you're here with us in person, you can line up next to the microphone to my left. And if you're joining us virtually, you can text your questions to 330 541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet your questions to at the City Club. So this is my last question for the panelists, and that is, why does the Ukraine conflict matter here? Just you know, a week ago, I heard a U.S. Senate candidate openly say on television, you know, this doesn't matter, we should be worrying about our, our southern border. So why does this conflict matter to us here in Cleveland? Well, this is much bigger than Ukraine. This is about the norms of the world order. If you can allow a world in which a larger power can, by dint of force, enter and rearrange the boundaries and kill the people, you're entering a Hobbesian world where things, you know, like nasty British are short. It's below the international norms, and it will affect every country in the world. We've had sort of peace since the late 1940s, roughly speaking, with some smaller conflagrations. Other than that, there's really been nothing big. This is returning to a world of chaos where nothing is certain. You know, the, the question you ask is one that I've been reflecting on for a while. I lived in Kiev in the 90s, and, and I used to get into these late night arguments and, you know, in, in bars with my Ukrainian friends. And I remember one Ukrainian friend of mine looked at me and said, Tadas, the problem with you is you're so damn idealistic. You're such an idealistic American. You Americans are just you're just off your rocker. And I looked at her and I said, the problem with you Ukrainians is that you're so cynical. You, and that cynicism is poison in your politics. You, you know, and I understand you've grown up in the Soviet era, but you've got to get over that cynicism. I think back on what's happening now and look at our politics and look at Ukraine. I mean, we're taking inspiration from their idealism. And I think for me at least, that's why this conflict matters. I, I also agree. It, it, it's it's a phenomenal question, and it's a question that I turned and gave to my 15-year-old a, a few weeks ago. Um, I tend to be a little more conservative in in my political leanings, um, and flipped him that question in a car. I'm like, so Stepan, you know, can you tell me, you know, why should why should people in the U.S. really care about Ukraine? Um, and in his kind of twisted way, and of course throwing in how the U.S. CIA used to kill people in, in Latin America and, you know, U.S. is so bad, um, said, you know, but you have a more powerful country attacking um, a, a weaker country. And what I think he couldn't get out is that, you know, we are morally right and, you know, we are still the number one country in the world. And as, again, as somebody who's lived in Ukraine for over 25 years, um, you know, since, since the 1990s, with, with a little break in between, you know, I've seen it. And you can take the view that, you know, the rest of the world doesn't matter and we shouldn't get involved in other people's conflicts. And okay, you know, I get that. We don't want to get involved in wars. We don't want to be pushing wars. 
but you know we are also learned we are also looked to by the rest of the world as a as a model as a beacon because you know we we are the, I'm sorry we, we're the best country we're the best country in the world we have the most diverse country in the world we have the most opportunity for anyone here there are faults but it, it is still it is still a something that the world looks to and having looked in a country that you know fought the former Soviet Union became free it has its problems there are, there is corruption there 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 are issues there there are political differences but you know as Taras pointed out earlier you know been through six presidential elections all democratic all bloodless you know Ukraine's been through a revolution bloodless and then two after that in, in, in internal revolutions bloodless except for what came except for what came from from, from the government so you know we as Americans why, why should it matter Ukraine's not asking the US to send troops so anything you hear on the media, that they're trying to spin it into, well, we shouldn't be sending troops. Ukraine hasn't asked for that. All they're asking for is diplomatic support, monetary support. And, you know, we, we, we you know, as Ukraine, as those who are supporting Ukraine are grateful for, for bills, you know, when, you know, we hear Senator Portman is, is pushing defense bills. And it sounds like a big number. Yes, yeah, 650 million more in defense going to Ukraine. You know what? It's a drop in the bucket for the six hundred fifty billion dollars that, that is spent by the U.S. government on its own defense. So Ukraine is defending the rest of the free world right now. It's defending Europe. People are dying on the streets, and they're not asking for troops. They're just saying, "Help us out. Help us out diplomatically. Help us out with sanctions. Help us out with weapons. You know, and send it, and we'll take care of the fight." And then after that, just please say thank you and and accept us to the countries and and the moral. Um, great people that Ukraine wants to turn to. It doesn't want to turn to Russia. It wants to turn to Europe and, and, and the West, which is led by the U.S. On a practical note, remember, this is not going to end with Ukraine. Putin went into Georgia in 2008, Crimea and Donbass 2014, now Ukraine. Uh, Estonia has more ethnic Russians, proportionally, than Ukraine does. Lithuania and uh, Latvia don't have many less. So if Mr. Putin gets away with this in Ukraine, it's going to continue. And Zelensky made a good comment at the EU last week, referring to the Second World War. He said, you didn't worry enough about Danzig, you worried a lot at Dunkirk. That's what we're facing. We can either recognize our failure to realize this in the past and stop it, or pay a higher price if he attacks a NATO country. And what do we do? And, and also, just to bring it down to a real sense, I was thinking about this while you know, all the press reports were, were going around with you know, all the Soviet exercises and they had 150,000 troops set, set up along the border. And I thought to myself, okay, if I'm one day and I wake up and I'm in an area and my neighbor is walking around with, with, with weapons in his yard, completely legally, it's in his yard and he can do it and he can carry those weapons. And he's walking around for months. Is it something that there is a moral obligation for people to stand up and, 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 and say something about it? I think there is. Thank you. I think it's time for your questions. I see many people line up, and I see Dan with, with his phone, which means we got... We've got some questions, questions. on to Twitter, but I'm going to start with this uh, this first question from Twitter. Uh, how is this conflict affected by international demand for oil and gas? Well, I think it certainly uh, took Germany longer than it might otherwise have to, to come in behind sanctions. But... You know, quite frankly, Germany's dependence on Russian oil and gas is pretty significant. The fact that actually they have come very strongly now 
uh, to Ukraine's defense and uh, have agreed to scuttle Nord Stream 2 tells you that they understand the gravity of it. But yes, there is, you know, certainly swift sanctions have not gone as far as they uh, the, as they could have uh, because of the oil and gas uh, markets. And, uh, you know, Russia is a commodity uh, exporter, and that's going to be a reality that we're going to have to deal with. And, and honestly, I think I, I think it is, but I think it's an opportunity right now for, for, for the United States. You know, I think it's an opportunity to um, move back to energy independence. I, I think it's an opportunity. Europe, Europe, and and especially Germany, and this discussion has been going on for for, for a long time. And you know, going back to 2014, and even back to the Orange Revolution of, of uh, 2000, 2004. One of the narratives that Russia has always tried to spin is that Ukraine is not a reliable partner for energy, um, and you know, therefore, you know, we should kind of quote unquote take care of take care of Ukraine because we are your reliable partner and we will supply you with energy. Is energy important? Absolutely, it is. Um, you know, but um, are are human lives and you know territorial integrity also important? You know, I would say I would say a little more so. Than, than, than the price of gas tomorrow. And I think the last six months showed Germany that gas is politicized. Uh, they claimed it never would be, and yet the supplies were running down, the reserves were down, and Mr. Putin wasn't turning up the spigot. So I think it was a clear shot across the bow saying, look, it's the middle of winter, your supplies are low, shame if a uh, war broke out. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. My name's Joseph Beinsner, I'm an attorney I've been involved with communism uh, since uh, going to Vietnam back in the 60s, and I've returned to Vietnam some 30 times along with Ms. Yalo Ryan's Friendship Foundation. And we have noted in Vietnam developments where people try to come together. I think many of us had hoped that that was also happening in terms of Russia. There was actually a segment of the people here, and besides Trump, a segment here which were looking upon Mr. Putin as something to advance relationships. And this is my question. Now that all this is happening, many people are wondering, well, what should we do? How can we help? And that's my question for the three of you. What should we do besides watching TV? And how can we help people over there besides smashing up all the vodka and the Spartanite? Well, I, think, I think the vodka bottles are uh, optics only. Uh, the two things you can do is to lobby your White House, your congressmen, your uh, senators, who are doing a great job, by the way, we really appreciate the support we're getting, and get them to do more. And the second is, if you can, to donate. There's a, a URL here for some organizations we have in town. You can provide support, uh, do so. So we need both lobbying on our, of our uh, representatives and support. Good evening. Uh, my name is George Kusa. Um, I'm my own company at Kusa Global Consulting and International Education Business Advising. I work also at my new boss, Mr. Meisner Law Firm, as a legal research and uh, public events and immigration. Anyway, uh, I'm a native of Syria, and my first question, I have two brief questions, is about the connection between the Putin's occupation of Syria killing uh, one million with the help of Putin, of course, but one million civilians, uh, refugees in Syria now, or the refugees, more than half the population, as most of you know, one million out of 52 million in Syria. So, again, uh, and claiming that is fighting terrorism. 
while he's dropping better bombing in Syria and my city Aleppo that day. So, sorry, I get emotional. But again, I see myself as a big connection between the control, of course, and the occupation of, of Putin, taking all these pretexts that, uh, you know, he's fighting the uh, neo-Nazi, and, and again, it's the very opposite of the very against Nazi uh, Ukraine as a Jewish even president and prime minister and they're doing great great job uh, brave brave work by these two the president and the prime minister against the Nazi himself Putin uh, the occupier the killer of children of Syria and now Ukraine so again if you should some light about the connection with that to prove my point I believe your point about you know this kind of connection and the control by 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 Putin and to deprive even Ukraine from belonging to NATO, of course, the European Union, which there is no justification for that except control and democracy. So, and then uh, the other question is uh, briefly again try to having worked for the United Nations peacekeeping forces in Syria myself in Syria and Israel, I really feel in the eighties, I feel that the UN is like very ineffective doing nothing, especially when they try to vote against, you know, the, the denounce even the, the atrocities, the crimes that have been already, you know, done by, by, by Putin. So is there any possibility, any chance that for this, for Putin to be tried in the tribunal and also to dismiss him or expel him from the vote uh, to uh, veto in the Security Council? And I think this should should be fair internationally, globally, and everything else for human rights. You know. uh, I'll take a stab at it, even, even though I'm, I'm not a Syrian, Syrian um, expert. Um, let me start with, with the last question with, with respect to the UN. I believe I saw something today that it was actually um, a resolution passed by the UN. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. There, there was a General Assembly resolution. Um, I, I think there are faults with the way the UN is set up, especially with the um, permanent members of the Security Council, and that's being witnessed by the world today. Um, I think the US, uh, the UN is still an institution that serves a purpose with respect to dialogue um, and needs to be keep, kept open because you always need to keep the lines of, of dialogue open. And I think the events you know, that we've seen over you know, literally the past couple of weeks with um, Russia heading up the UN um, um, the, the Security Council president, um, they've embarrassed themselves. And I think now the world is going to kind of sit back and say, you know, we, we need to take this more seriously and address it so it becomes a more effective institution. The only thing that I would say in addition to that, on the Syria question, again, I'm not an expert, and I would love to actually have a panel on that and understand that, that, that more deeply uh, here. Uh, I would say simply that Putin is evil. And I know that it's somewhat out of fashion to call someone evil as it seems so black and white, but you have to call evil by its name. You have to call it what it is. And I think that that's maybe another thing that we can do here. We, 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 can't, equiv we can't equivocate. We, we, we can't pull punches. And, and then one other thing, and then going back to the previous gentleman's question, what we can do to help keep up awareness. You know, I think one of the problems, you know, that Syria faced is, is the, the people in the United States did not understand the issue. You know, they, they just did. You know, it was a blip on the news. 
Ukraine right now has full, full full coverage. Everybody is seeing it. Everybody knows where it is in, in, in the world. Everybody can point to a map and say, this is Ukraine. Um, and it's important for people to have an understanding and, and not just to argue the issue when it's convenient, but to try to understand the issue and, and keep it up in the forefront of, of their everyday thinking. I think Syria was a live fire exercise, but rather than doing it as that, they used real people. It was a way to test his commanded control by his troops and to test his uh, missiles. Unfortunately, the world didn't quite realize that. If I can, before your question, I'm just going to jump in super quick to answer the gentleman's accountability question, because that is actually what I do in my in my research. So just allow me a second. The International Criminal Court, which is located at The Hague, actually has jurisdiction over war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Ukraine. So that is one place where someone like Putin could actually be prosecuted someday. And then courts of various countries can also exercise jurisdiction over atrocity crimes um, in cases that belong under so-called universal jurisdiction. So if somebody commits an atrocity, torture, genocide, crime against humanity, the courts of any nation could, in theory, prosecute that person. So on that accountability front, I'm actually hopeful that at some point in the in the near future, we might actually see, see some prosecutions. Hi, um, I'm Catherine Ryan. I'm first-generation American. My family is Slovakian-Ukrainian. And um, my question is, how great do you think the threat is to other neighboring young democracies like Slovakia? Well, well as I mentioned, uh, Mr. Putin has an insatiable appetite, and every seven or eight years he makes another move. So this, the next move might come sooner than that, in part because he's under sanctions. Um, and as I mentioned, the Baltics have a larger fraction of Russian-speaking population than Ukraine does. And, and nominally, at least, he's going to say what's called Men, the Russian world, whatever that means. So if you speak Russian in Little Odessa, in Brooklyn, in theory, you could come worry about your well-being and liberated. Um, I think Slovakia might be a little bit off. There aren't many Russian speakers there. But he certainly could rattle the borders, because if he takes Ukraine, Slovakia's border may have nuclear missiles aimed at Slovakia from there. And he may not threaten to come in, but he may say, you know, you got a nice little country there. Shame if something happened. You know, boy, how are you voting at the UN these days? What about that gas? Let's talk about the gas. So I think it, it's going to come on different levels, psychological, economic. I think military would probably be last, I would hope. But it would not make life pleasant for anybody in those democracies. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, he's, he's not going to attack something. So he's not going to attack militarily because of Article 5 of, of, of NATO right now, but he will keep putting on um, pressures of trying to create division within the country, trying to create doubt, um, trying to get favored leaders in there. Um, and I think, you know, we do have to thank the world right now. The response has been good. It's, it's been really good for Ukraine. And I think you know, Putin is a bully, and now he's understood that the world is ready to stand up. He kept pushing, pushing, pushing the envelope for, for a number of weeks. Um, but the reaction of the world over these over these past five days, you know, I think it's just been phenomenal. And as long as the world stands up and says, we're not going to be bullied, he will also not bully. Hello, my name is William. I live in the South Euclid. If you listen to WCPN, you know me. Uh, my question is slightly off track. Based on Putin and his actions in Ukraine, Georgia, and he's now basically declared Ukraine is being my playground. Keep the H out. He's also threatened Finland. 
who is an independent nation, has been independent for 60 years, who borders that. He's also threatened Sweden, who's neutral, well, pro-German World War II. If he does not border, my question is, what would you advise Taiwan to do against China? Should they basically develop nuclear weapons in accordance or with Japan, who borders a nuclear China, possibly South Korea, who borders a nuclear North Korea, and the Philippines, and Australia, who have been basically threatened by the Chinese. My question is, how do you keep the Chinese, quote unquote, where they are now? Well, um, if any of us had the easy answer to that question, you know, uh, where would we be, right? Uh, and and I'm, I'm certainly not a China expert. I, I will just, I'll just answer with one observation, and that is the world is watching, right? I mean, the world is watching, and, and uh, right now I think the world is responding very, very well to, to what uh, you know, Peter said. I think he, it's exactly right. The world is responding very well to the Ukrainian crisis, but, but how we do in this crisis is going to dictate not only this crisis, but future world crisis that are going to be inevitably coming down the line. Uh, I, I, I agree. I don't know if we should be encouraging nuclear weapon proliferation anywhere around the world. And I think we, again, as the United States, have to understand we have a responsibility. Yes, we have the, you know, we have a huge nuclear arsenal, but we use it wisely. And, you know, we're, we're only using it for defense, but to advocate other countries using it, um, I, I wouldn't personally go there, um, but I think the, the the Chinese are watching this extremely carefully. They're, they're you know, and um, my feeling is that they're kind of happy that China that Russia is testing the waters because they're waiting for the world reaction. And I think right now, two weeks ago, they would have said mm, the world is looking pretty weak. But I think uh, the Chinese are looking right now and saying. You know what? I think there's a force that might that we might have to reckon with, and we shouldn't be so quick to say that we're going to jump in and take Taiwan tomorrow. Hello, good evening. Slava Ukraini. Slava Slava. Zakaria Shevchenko, Germaniuk. Full disclosure: I am a colleague of uh, Professor Stereos, a natural professor of law. You're a plant. At <laughs> <laughs> and, and my guess is you're Ukrainian. I am. <laughs> Very much so. I have I have two questions because earlier it was brought up. Why should this matter here to the United States? Um, <clears throat> It's no secret that there is a segment of our society that is unabashedly uh, pro-Putin. Uh, we've seen it. We've seen it from, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson on the most watched news network uh, in America, Fox News. Obviously, the close relationship that the prior administration had with uh, Putin uh, to the effect of Paul Manafort saying, I may have committed some light treason. Uh, I, be careful with that. Oh, sure. We, we can go I, I'll, I'll have a discussion with you at, there. I've actually read the memo that he wrote. Okay. Well, let's talk afterwards. <laughs> the point that I make is that at, my question to the panel is this. At what point do you think uh, uh, the American people will wake up to realize that there is a segment of our population that looks to Putin's Russia with admiration 
particularly its treatment of domestic dissidents. I'm sure there are many Trump supporters who see the way that Putin treats anti-war protesters in Moscow would love to see the same kind of violent force used against domestic protesters here, maybe with regards to Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ rights, which are again under sincere threat in Russia. Uh, so that's my question, is that at what point does America wake up and realize that there is uh, an insidious element that is seeking through various means, gerrymandering, voter suppression, to install the same kind of totalitarianism that we see in Russia uh, here in the United States. And my question to the audience is, what are you willing to do when that threat comes home? You, you know, I, I want to make sure that we're focused really on Ukraine and, you know, and not on United States domestic politics. But the one thing that I would say about America is that, you know, we're not afraid to follow the truth and, and we're not afraid to, to have these discussions and have free speech and really expose these differences of opinion. You're absolutely right that there is a, a, a block of American society that um, really admires Putin. A lot of it's kind of like the old school throwback. You know, he's the old, you know, Christian traditionalist and, you know, and, and it's going to be the antidote to these nefarious Western values that are pulling, you know, uh, Ukraine, you know, into this awful, evil Europe. Uh, and, and, and frankly, you're going to have that portion of society that's going to believe that. There's, there's going to be a segment of our society that's going to believe that. Frankly, I'm just proud to live in a, in a country in which we can have these debates. We can have this discussion in a forum like this and, you know, without fear of retribution or without fear of, of, uh, of persecution. And frankly, the Ukrainians just want to be able to have that debate, too. And if, if I may add, and, and, and in full disclosure, I'm a big fan of Fox News. I, I watch it every night. Um, I'm not. Um, he's, he, 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 he's not. But we're very good friends. He, 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 he's not. I think Tucker Carlson has done a big disservice to, to the U.S. public with his messaging there. And quite frankly, I think he has been bought off by the Russians. And I, and I will tell you, I'll give you concrete examples. A couple of weeks ago, he got on and was laughing at MBC, MSNBC because of some experts they had on there. He put on an expert, didn't really quite say who he was, but a, a little Googling um, made me figure out that the, the person, the expert that he had on was a visiting scholar at Moscow State University, which is the KGB school in Russia. And then, and then the following week, Tucker goes over to Budapest to talk about what a great country he is with, with, a, with, with a president that is avowedly pro-president. Pro this is exactly the messaging, that, and this is exactly what Putin wants to see happen. He wants certain people to take messages, and when Tucker says, why should we care about Ukraine? You know, why don't we just you know, get cheaper gas and buddy up to Russia? Why? Because it's morally wrong. Russia is a morally bad country. They're attacking an innocent country, and we need to disassociate the messages that Tucker is sending from the reality that that's, that's, that that is on the ground. So, you know. I live in a world where January 6, 2021 occurred, and there's a phrase called Tutushki. We can talk about that later. Happy to do so. We have time for one last question. Love you, Dutch. What's the end game? Like, what is like? How does this? What are your predictions? What is this? How does this all culminate? What's the 
realistic expectation for Ukraine and for the Ukrainian diaspora all over the world, right? Like what is what can we expect? Well, hopefully not global thermonuclear war. That's uh, that, that's what nobody wants. But it, but 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 I think the end game. I think with what the West has has shown right now, and quite honestly, what the Ukrainians have shown, I think Putin has been surprised that the the, the, the Ukrainian society is not welcoming him, and everything from from the army to everyday citizens are are taking arms and and, and fighting the Russians. So I, I think it ends in. A lot of bloodshed in, in in the next coming. I don't know if it's going to be two weeks or, or a month or, or or a half a year. Um, I think as long as the West is unified with pressure that it keeps putting on Russia, um, again, not necessarily military pressure, but diplomatic. Uh, we've seen an awful lot of sanctions by governments, and I think what's um, what's been very positive is the what private companies are doing right now. Um, and I, I'm a firm believer that we, we will have a lot of deaths in Ukraine, but we, in the end we'll have a victorious Ukraine. We will hopefully have a crippled Russia, and we, will have, um, and we won't have a Putin in, in, in the next six months. Yeah, I, I agree with Paul. We're a little bit less optimistic, but I think the, the end game Mr. Putin was that come out of their houses with red salt. Greek liberated over. So that uh, plan closed the window in two days. He then made a blitz for KO. That went out too. And they're adapting to the end game. I think that they will be to at least rubble one or two cities uh, in a severe way, uh, degrade the military by killing tens of thousands of soldiers, and then declare victory. Um, I don't see how we can impose a government of occupation like the time, because the person will be killed. There's no question about the Ukrainians. So I think that I agree with Paul saying that ultimately, Ukrainian state will prevail. But between now and then, will be rivers of blood. One um, ironic outcome of all of this is that Ukraine, as a country, is probably more united than they've ever been. Uh-huh. You know, I think uh, you know. I I remember in you know 2000, 2005 when I I, I returned from Ukraine, I, in, living here, and I would meet someone in that had an accent that sounded familiar, and they were speaking Russian. I'd say, "You know, where are you from?" And they'd say, "Well, I'm I'm from Russia." And so, well, where in Russia? No, Kiev. <laughs> well, I challenge you today to find anyone who is going to say that they're from Russia if they're from Kiev now. And it, it's and I think I think what you've got is a Ukrainian national identity that is going to survive uh, long after Putin is no longer with us. Thank you for joining us for today's forum. Thank you for joining us for today's forum, Happy Dog Takes on the Ukraine Crisis. We have been joined today by Dr. George Jaskou, Vice President of the United Ukrainian Organization of Ohio and Professor of Psychiatry, Tarash Magala, Chairman and President of the Ukrainian Catholic Education Foundation, and Peter Taluk of Squire Patton Boggs' Kiev office, and who, who has recently served as a Senior Advisor to the Ukrainian Ministry of Economy. Today's forum is part of the City Club in the Community Series, sponsored by Bank of America. We're grateful for their support, as well as our community partner, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs. Be sure to join us on Friday, March 4th. We will hear from Chris Kuhar, Executive Director of the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. He 
we will be talking about the zoo's efforts in wildlife conservation and the zoo's efforts to connect people with the natural world. And we will be back here at the Happy Dog next month on Wednesday, April 6th. We will be discussing the recent Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and the changing politics surrounding our nation's highest court. Thank you all for joining us today, both here at the Happy Dog and streaming live. I'm Milena Stereo. Our forum is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you all here for, for your interest and, and, and for your questions.